Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Ariana Curtis. Ariana Curtis is the curator of Latinx studies at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, where she leads research and collections that center Latinidad through an African American lens. She has published in academic and popular outlets and appeared in national media, including NPR, Latino USA, and The Root. Her TED Talk about women and museum representation has received over 3 million views. Dr. Curtis is a Fulbright Scholar, founding member of the Black Latinas Know Collective, and board member of Duke Libraries, the National Association of Latino Arts and Cultures, and the Museum Association of the Caribbean. Ariana, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So you grew up in Western Mass, the Springfield area, and now you're a curator at the Smithsonian. So how did, <laughs> I know, right? How, how did your early life shape your professional interests in, uh, in, in Afro-Latinidad and your interests in those areas? Uh, this is such a great question um, because I will say that I'm someone, because of my curatorial work, I think I have been forced to speak a little bit more personally. <laughs> mm. um, you know, be, just for many reasons, but we'll get into those. Um, so I, yes, I was born and raised in Western Massachusetts. I'm the child of New Yorkers and anyone who is family with or children of New Yorkers know how important that New York identity is <laughs> to, to them. So my mother's African-American. She was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My dad is Black Panamanian. He was born in Panama and raised mostly in Queens. So they met um, in New York. I'm the youngest of four. My oldest sibling, my oldest brother was born in New York. The rest of us were born in Western Massachusetts. So I was raised in this small town in Western Massachusetts. We often went to Springfield, you know, the city for most social things, mm -hmm. but I was actually, uh, grew up in a small, predominantly white town called East Long Meadow. And I went to school with the same people basically for my whole life. <laughs> so there were three elementary schools um, that fed one middle school, one high school. My graduating class was maybe 200 people. And that was considered a very large class. But I say all that to say that, you know, in terms of identity, it's not that I was always around different kinds of people where I had to kind of reintroduce myself. So I very much understood myself as Black. Um, both of my parents are Black. They're from different countries. And that's just, you know, what we knew. Mm -hmm. um, Western Massachusetts is actually very densely Puerto Rican. So before Hurricane Maria, I think it was one of the densest concentrations of Puerto Rican in the mainland United States, right? Not quantity, but just density. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that too, because I constantly saw Puerto Ricans of all hues, you know, with varying levels of Spanish. So I didn't have to grow up in a Spanish speaking household or travel to Panama or live with other Panamanians to know and feel that I was Panamanian mm -hmm. in the same way that I always knew I was black in this very predominantly white <laughs> town. Um, in the same way I knew both of my parents were Black, but from different countries. And so I've started to call myself differently, not because I think of myself differently, but because as I move through different contexts, I realized how I considered myself or how I articulated myself was being misunderstood. And so getting, you know, all of that to get to your question of, you know, like my Latinidad is Black. It's not a Black, like that I'm Black and Latina as Latina, non-Black. 
You know, I'm always mm. like, I'm black mixed with black. <laughs> My Latinidad is black and I'm African-American. And these two things are not in conflict in the way that I felt people made them feel like they were, right? That you had to yeah. choose something. And so in college, you know, once I left that town and, you know, people knew my parents, they knew my family. Like I said, I didn't have to ever reintroduce myself or explain anything about why my dad has this Panamanian flag in his car Mm -hmm. um, or why his name is Rolando. So when I get to college, I go to to Duke in North Carolina and being in the South was very different for me. (laughs) Being in a predominantly Mexican Latinx context was very different for me. You know, I didn't realize how Caribbean my context was until I left it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so college was where I had to think about myself personally and how I described myself in ways that people would understand. But it was also that seed for my academic interests, right? In enhancing this visibility of black people in Latin America and black people of Latin American heritage in the United States. So that kind of academic and personal context led to me pursuing this professionally. Um, Great. Do you want um, me to keep going? <laughs> no, I mean, you, you absolutely can keep going. Yeah, okay. can keep going. Yeah, I just say, like, in, I'm a Latin Americanist by training mm-hmm. um, because that's what was available, right? There, like, there wasn't Latinx studies. Right. But my, my major at Duke um, was, I appreciated it so much, and I think it has everything to do with why I chose the profession that I chose. So we could choose geographic areas. You could choose two geographic areas and take any classes in any discipline that the university offered as long as they were geographically bound and you had language requirements. So my areas were North America and Latin America. So Spanish was the language that I chose. I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I learned. Um, So it was just interesting. It was just like thinking back, it was such a juxtaposition between so many of the classes that I took about North America or African-American history, right? Or African-American literature, black studies. And all the classes that I took in about Latin America were raceless. Mm. Right. There were no classes about race in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And it was always really the same countries that we learned about, too. It would be like Argentina and, and um, ISI, Brazil, Mexico, Cuba, you know, sometimes Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I remember all my Latin American literature classes were mostly South American male writers. You know, there wasn't for all of the diversity that we presented in the United States in terms of the courses offered. Like none of that was present in the Latin American offerings. And so if I had the chance to choose my own paper topics, I generally chose something about Panama because I just didn't grow up knowing a whole lot about the politics of that country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving on to graduate school, I, I, I'm in a program of anthropology, race, gender, social justice. Like I had to create my own independent studies about post-colonial studies or race and blackness in Latin America. And any classes about race in Latin America really were about blackness. Mm-hmm. And so trying to have some independent studies where I was trying to understand other racial dynamics you know, in the region. And so it was just so interesting to me that when we talk about the United States, race is so present and how we learn about it, how we talk about it, how we understand it. And then Latin America is just like this weird raceless place. Yeah, let's <laughs> so I think yes. I really wanted, yeah, right. In, in, in the instruction, you know, in, yes. in the instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, with those gaping holes, that's really why I wanted my career to focus on black people. Right. And to create work that is publicly accessible, but also has some public accountability where we're not just writing about black people as subjects, but people are informing what we're doing, receiving it, correcting <laughs> the record. You know that we're not just talking to ourselves, because that's how I really felt in college, that 
I was like, well, there aren't a whole lot of Afro-Latinos here as students. And so you're not getting that feedback as professors that there are these large gaps and millions of people that you're not representing. You know, I, I didn't feel like there was that kind of talk back. And so I really wanted my my professional life and my career to to have that. Well, and we're so glad that you do. Um, <laughs> and it's and it, and obviously from talking that it's clear that you're you're passionate about Afro-Latinidad. Um, and you see it as really integral to what you're doing at the Smithsonian. So talk a little bit about um a little bit more about why you were drawn to the museum realm um, to, as a showcase for exploring Afro-Latinidad. Yeah, and that's another great question because I think I'm, I try to normalize when I talk about my career trajectory, I try to normalize. I didn't know what a curator really did until I was late in graduate school. <laughs> you know, it's fine to learn new things and change your mind about what you want to do. I really thought I wanted to do policy work. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, you know, how, how I was going to express these passions. Um, but I think museum work builds nicely just on the multidisciplinary academic training that I had, right? Considering all of these different things about a place. And I think because I got that so early as an undergrad, being able to take politics and literature and language and anthropology and economics, you know, and just really go deep in a particular place instead of going broad in one discipline. I think that museums, you know, the way that they include visual, material, and tangible culture, you know, that we hopefully, at least Black museums for sure, you know, try and normalize these different ways of knowing and these different ways of being and really putting forward multiple perspectives and multiple lenses, you know, to understand something. I think that in the public accountability piece, you know, really was just so important for me in ways that I didn't know until I was doing policy work. Mm-hmm. And it was like, there's no public accountability for this. Like people are, you know, everyday people are not reading these policy papers to know how it is that people have, you know, interviewed them to, to talk about their situations where, you know, at least theoretically with the Smithsonian being free, that anyone can come in, you know, and see your work, you know, museums now allow photography, you know, so anyone can take a picture and post on social media and talk about, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like. And we see that, you know, and I think different, you know, differently, you know, we value it. Um, but being able to have that kind of talk back, being able to get that kind of feedback about something that you're putting forward, I think is just really critical to me. And so I love that I'm part of that representation and interpretation, both as anthropologist and curator, because I think both of those professions lie so deeply on relationships right and community knowledge and so i think for me being an afro-latina curator being able to represent afro-latinidad not just as subject right but as a source of knowledge you know as a cultural political social economic foundation and so being at the smithsonian i i feel so passionately about making sure it's part of how we talk about black americanness right that black and african-american are not synonyms Mm -hmm. and that we don't represent it that way like that we talk about it as part of Latinidad. So it was very intentional because I came in through this broader Latino curatorial initiative to the institution. I was like, no, I, I want my titles to be curator of Latinx studies, not Afro-Latinx studies, because these things are not separate. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about, you know, the growth of Latinx scholarship at this institution, I want to make sure that I am part of that central conversation, not an ancillary Afro-Latinx conversation. Um, you know, that we talk about Afro-Latinidad when we're talking about American history. These are not new. <laughs> They're right. not new histories. They're not new identities. If we're talking historically, then we need to be in that conversation, especially global history. I think that goes without saying. 
um, but also part of Black futures. You know, just the demographic, even if we're just talking about the United States, there have been deep demographic shifts in this country, right? I think, according to Pew, maybe last year, one out of 10 Black Americans is an immigrant, mm. you know? And so just thinking about when we're projecting and imagining that we are imagining Afro-Latinx and Afro-Latina people as part of these Black futures as well. And so I think that that really has been, for me, the passion of my work is that in any in any space I'm in, in this large institution, that we can be certain that I'm going to bring up Afro-Latinidad. We're not going to pretend like that doesn't exist as part of this conversation, not just because of my personal identity, but because of my academic training and my professional commitment. Yeah, I love that framing, that it's it's a part of everything, everything, past, present, future, uh, and that you're there to make sure that it gets that it gets uh, inserted, not inserted, but included in the conversation, that it's not, like you said, it's not some separate standalone, but it is very much a part of all the, the whole fabric. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it is sometimes inserted, right? I do think that it's important for me to physically be in these spaces, because if I'm not, we can't guarantee that anyone's going to bring this up. You know, there just really aren't many of us at the institution period. And just like I said, the way that I was trained is the way other people were trained, <laughs> you know, as Afro-Latinidad not being part, you know, of, of their own academic program. So I do think that there is an insertion and a correction um, that we provide when we are in these spaces. Definitely, definitely. So I, I want to ask a little bit about all the things you're doing at the Smithsonian um, and how that work contributes to our understanding of both Afro Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx communities. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes when I think about, you know, what do we do at the Smithsonian or what even do I do? I kind of sometimes feel overwhelmed. <laughs> like it's so many things. <laughs> it's so many things like there's short term things and, you know, like really long term things. Um, but I think at the heart of it, what I'm hoping is, is the specificity that's inherent in museum collections. Right, that there is a time and a place and a context and connection that is articulated and a reason why we have this thing. You know, what is the importance of this thing that we have collected? How is it connected to X, Y, or Z? What is the context of its creation? You know, what places um, does this add to our record? What is the time period in which this existed and how it was used? I think that there really is, for me, a historical rootedness in the work that we do, but always with this idea of contemporary resonance. You know, and I think we talk so much about diversity, but people, in my experience, have a difficult time understanding like what that looks like. And so I think that is so critical to the work that we do in terms of material culture to show like this is the physical evidence, right, of of our existence historically, today. These are artistic representations about, you know, who we are as a people and, and the connectedness of it. You know, and I, I keep talking about connectedness because I do work at an African-American museum. So I do think that the connectedness of Black people is so important, but the specificity also, because I think when we talk about Afro-Latinidad, we're talking really about Blackness across an entire hemisphere yes, in a way that we don't always talk about other identities in that way. And so I always want to be clear that like, for me, I'm, I'm Panamanian. That is different than being Colombian. It's different than being Cuban. And so I 
feel a connectedness, right, with other Afro-Latina people, but there's also a specificity and a connectedness, I feel, with other Panamanians. And just the way that we talk about African-American history and culture as different than Afri Afro-Mexican or Afro-Canadian, that we're always giving that acknowledgement of specificity to Black people in this hemisphere as well. Mm -hmm. So I do think that, you know, that geographic specificity is something that I think is really important to the work that we do because the Smithsonian really is a U.S.-based, a U.S.-looking organization. Um, you know, we acknowledge the human diversity that lives within the United States. And so I think increasingly we're really including Black diversity in that. And that really has been the role of Black museums in the institution, um, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture above, above others. Can you, can you give us an example of either a past or, or a current project where you see those those pieces coming together um, in the in the way in that specificity, but also the broadness, um, the, the acknowledgement of all that um, um, uh, ethnic diversity within within blackness? Yeah, so I would say um, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because I I consider my TED talk just like a love letter um to, to black culture mm -hmm. and i think there are black people who, who have always seen it that way <laughs> and other people who are kind of like oh until you mentioned it i didn't really realize that you pretty much only use examples of black people uh. <laughs> in this talk right because black women is, is not part of the title right um you know but i was just like certainly we can we can use these examples um we can use these examples of black women to talk about larger larger issues, which I think is what I am passionate about, right? Like inserting blackness into <laughs> these larger conversations as opposed to always having a separate conversation that deals with blackness. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, the, the anchor object in my TED talk is the boat seat that is on view um, in our cultural expressions gallery. It was the very first object donated to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And I talk about it all the time, but just because I feel like the story is so clear and visually, it translates so well that people understand it. You know, so it is the Ecuadorian boat seat that has a carving of a spider web and a spider representing Anansi. Yes. And I feel like, you know, that the Anansi piece, people understand that this is a West African folktale, mm -hmm. right? That traveled through people <laughs> and rooted all in all of these different places in the African diaspora. So Anansi stories exist in multiple languages. They have existed across generations, across time. And that is the connection to African-American history and culture. Like we don't have that boat seat because it's from a black community in Ecuador, right? We're not a diaspora museum. We have this boat seat because it's showing the connection of this Afro-Indian community to African-American history and culture and also to African diasporic communities all over. You know, and so I think being able to see that is different than just talking about culture traveling and existing across generations. And I think another just example in the like a, an object example in the museum that I know have really resonated with people, particularly non-Black people, is um, Ingrid Silva's ballet slippers. Mm -hmm. So she's a Black Brazilian ballerina. She dances with the Dance Theater of Harlem. And she previously had to use Black opal makeup to color her pink ballet shoes to match her skin tone. And I think for me, it's so important that we not just talk about race as racial identification, right? That we're actually talking about like how race works, how race operates, what that means. And I think this was one of those everyday instances where people are like, wow, you act they actually did not make ballet slippers in other 
tones. Mm -hmm. Like she, she literally had to find and put forward effort just to dance, you know? And so I think those are the kinds of stories that we tell, you know, these big international stories like the boat seat and these small everyday stories like ballet slippers. Mm -hmm. Um, For a project that I actually led, I would say it's the Latinx collections portal. Because again, I, I give a lot of talks and say, you know, the National Museum of, of African-American History and Culture is the only African-American museum with a curatorial position dedicated to Latinx studies. And everyone thinks that's wonderful, right? Because firsts, firsts are always important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people are also like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what do you, what would you collect? Like, what, what? You know, so I appreciate having this portal that's not an Afro-Latinx portal. It's a Latinx collections portal to show how Latinx collections representing Blackness and non, you know, non-Black Latinidad, what those connections are to African-American history and culture, right? To not always have this backdrop of whiteness and think about communities of color and their relationships to each other. And so I'm really proud that we're able to have videos and essays and maps in addition to objects and guided searches for people to have a, a better understanding contextually and just from an object level of what that looks like and, and why it's important for us to understand history through these lenses. No, definitely. And um, just thinking about that, um, what do you think are some of the most urgent issues for the work that you do, especially as it relates to Afro-Latinidad? I mean, I think the most urgent issue right now in the United States is the census. It's absolutely the census and racial identification, right? For sure. I have found that people are hesitant to call white Latinx people white. And without that recognition of whiteness within Latinidad, other racial differences are also muted. You know, I grew up in a time where you could only check one box. And so often I had to choose between identifying as Black African-American or as Hispanic Latino. And so that wasn't, for me, I, I always chose Black, right? But I also recognized that I have an African-American parent. And so it wasn't as though I had two parents who were Black, Hispanic, Latino, and I felt like, okay, this is an absolute mismatch. But I think, you know, the further that I've gotten into just understanding how other people understand or misunderstand race. The fact that the United States' Office of Management and Budget does not acknowledge Latin America as a place where Black people can be from is so dangerous, right? Because racial categories are policy in the United States. So if we stop disaggregating for race, we're saying any racial difference in Latin American heritage either doesn't exist or is not important in the United States, which we know isn't true, Mm -hmm. right? But then that also means that there's no standing for racial discrimination, right? To fight against racial discrimination, which we know happens because we know it's true for black people everywhere else they name, right? But there wouldn't be any kind of legal standing for black people of Latin American heritage. And I think just given the political climate that we're in, that is the most urgent, <laughs> the absolute most urgent issue that we have right now is that it's essentially taking away process, you know, to fight against discrimination, to fight against racial discrimination, because that racial part is the key for U.S. policy. 
So true. Yeah, the, I've been having a lot of conversations about the census lately um, and the proposed changes. Uh, and although this might be, not be the forum for it, it just it just seems like how could you why are you putting together two categories that have that that, that are not the same that they you know, you, and you and again, also the other piece of it is um, the issue when you mentioned the, the issues of inequality, you know, how does that translate into resources? Because that is partly your counting. The counting takes right. place in order to distribute distribute resources too. And so if you're not counting people and communities, then guess what? They're not getting the support that they need either. So or they're allowing, or they're saying, you know, that the, we will give your community support, but we know the way racism exists, that there will be people who won't benefit from that. Mm. Right. And I think, for me, the day, you know, it's it's just, ugh. Jason probably would be like, stop talking about this, I don't know. But um, the, the fact that we can acknowledge like everywhere else in the world where there are black people, there is discrimination. This is removing that, you know, from, from, any, from any people of Latin American heritage. And I always go back to um, Mendez versus Westminster as one of those uh, precedent cases for Brown versus the Board of Education. And I know people like to uphold it as this, you know, this important precedent case, but I think that sometimes the importance of that case is misunderstood. And what it basically said, right, is that Mexican is not a race, that Latino is not a race. Mm -hmm. And therefore separating Mexican students from white students is illegal because the law is about racial this, the racial segregation. And so my fear with the census is that there now is no grounds because we're, they're not saying that Latino is a race. They're just counting it on the same level as a race, but it's not a race, right? Right. So you can't, you can't take up any kind of racial discrimination suits because now there's no counting for race and this category is not a race. And so that's, you know, that's the area that I think is so dangerous because that's not true for any other group, right? The, the other case that I always think about in terms of Brown versus the Board of Education is Lum versus Rice, which was in like the, in the 20s where the United States Supreme Court, there was a Chinese family in Mississippi who wanted their kids to go to the white school. And the Supreme Court said, no, racial minority children go to a different school because, you know, because. Asian Chinese is a race in the eyes of the United States, mm -hmm. whereas Mexican Latino is not. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're just headed, we're headed to a very bad place. And so I think part of the role of public scholarship and you know the, the very public way that the Smithsonian exists is to reinforce, not even to normalize, but to reinforce racial difference. Not in a way that's, you know, in a harmful way, or mm -hmm. but to say like there are <laughs> the racial difference exists in Latin America in the same way that it exists in the United States. There may be more terminologies, right? But the hierarchy is the same where whiteness is at the top and blackness is at the bottom. And I think it's just so counterintuitive that now that we have Latin American census is actually starting to count black people more regularly. Panama, this is the second time, right? That they've done it. They did it in 2010, they did it in 2020. And the United States is moving in the opposite direction. You know, exactly. and so there's just this disconnect hemispherically mm -hmm. um, that I think is just so problematic for us as as black people and really just problematic for everyone because we we just don't have a good understanding numerically, like data wise, 
of what is happening and how to move towards equality. I think that's beautifully said, beautifully said. Um, so as we kind of get to our last kind of closing question, although I could certainly talk with you all day. <laughs> um, so in addition to your publications, your TED Talk uh, and your work with the Black Latinas No Collective, what other kinds of resources would you recommend to people who want to learn more about what the Smithsonian does, uh, surrounding um, Latinx and Afro-Latinidad, um, Afro-Latin American, Afro-Latin communities more broadly? What kind of resources? Um, well, the Smithsonian is interesting because it's a huge institution and they're Latinx scholars all over. So I'm at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Definitely check out our Latinx collections portal. It is award-winning, which we're very proud of. Um, there are exhibitions that are opening all over. So one that I'm excited about, um, and I had some conversations with the curators. I wouldn't say I was an advisor to it, but we had some really wonderful conversations. Um, a show called 1898 about American imperialism is opening at our National Portrait Gallery. And one of the curators is Taina Caragol, who was also hired um, through this Latino curatorial initiative. Um, we, you know, the legislation passed for the National Museum of the American Latino so what was our Smithsonian Latino Center is now the National Museum of the American Latino. And it's going to be very interesting just to see how they're able to set themselves up as a museum, whereas before they were a center. So they didn't have scholars, they didn't have curators, they didn't have a collection. And so they will be in the process of building that, um, which is obviously going to have repercussions around the institution because we haven't before had a real national collection that represented Latinidad in any way. There are always these collections at different museums under different missions, right? So what I'm doing at African-American History and Culture, what Taina does at the Portrait Gallery, um, what our colleagues do at American History. So I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I do think that some of the other work of the Smithsonian is really just uplifting other great scholarship and work that exists. You know, so I was able to do a book talk, for example, with Keisha about her book, Panama and Black, and just being able to connect um, with scholars who are on the ground doing this work and put this in front of a larger audience, the kind of audience that the Smithsonian has as an institution. Well, wonderful. And, and I'll certainly, we'll certainly make um, that information available on the, our podcast episode page. Um, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. It's clearly very personal, but also professional. And uh, we just love the work that you're doing. And so I uh, look forward to more of it. <laughs> thank you thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend for links to the resources mentioned in the interview visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast <laughs>